He was a ladies' man, and he liked very fine things. So I don't really think that we played that down in any way. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I remember seeing him at one of the first, you know, parties, and I think it's when he meets Gene, and I'm just like, wow, this man has style and a swag. <laughs> like, I, I get it. You know? He purposely has to have it. Hello, and welcome to the Art of Costume Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Joy Glass. And I'm Spencer Williams. Elizabeth, good to see you. Two times good. in one week. I know. <laughs> how how lucky are we? I know. How was your past two days? <laughs> uh, great. I took myself to breakfast. It was actually oh. quite good. Yeah. So you, you're like a diner person now. Yeah. Go sit with the old men at the counter. Mm-hmm. Read my news app. <laughs> I won't be getting a... a paper that's too much work <laughs> but yeah that's that's a bit over the top <laughs> yeah um yeah it's it's been good over here I'm just enjoying some iced coffee uh oh, i'm back nice, in my video nice. game phase Ooh, I, what are you uh, playing well of course i fell back into the sims over vacation so of you know, course that, that will probably fizzle out any day now um because we've talked about this once you start you just get hooked for like a couple weeks and then you fall off yeah I I deleted The Sims, but I You'll think I'm just going to wait for whatever their next edition. Yeah, they're, whatever. It'll be Sims 5 next, I think. Sims 5 is in if the they, works. Uh, they just came out with that like new expansion pack, though, where you, you could be like a a uh, landlord and own like an apartment building. Have you seen that? No, that's how long I've been out of The Sims. Well, it's like pretty new. I think I might get that, honestly. Okay, that actually sounds fun. <laughs> Aspirations. Um, you know, I've been playing Dreamlight, which I need a Dreamlight update from you. And also yes. I've been playing uh, God of War. I know you probably like Oh, but okay. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. I I know some people who play that. My brother, who's a video game designer, like gets me all these 
video games like every Christmas. <laughs> and like, I just have like oh, a stack awesome. of like unopened video games. So I'm like, okay, I got to start cracking these open because oh, <laughs> pile keeps getting that's bigger and fun, bigger. So. That's fun. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Did you get the uh, Dreamlight expansion yet? No, not yet. But I'm dying to. Uh, I will be very shortly. Have it. you? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you love it? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> How I, is um the the little controversy in your village going? Oh, you know, spicier by the minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see Prince Eric and Belle just, you know, often at Remy's, just just sitting there. Like <laughs> like nothing's wrong. Never with their spouses. Never with their spouses. I never literally never see Eric and Ariel together. Never. Yeah. Occasionally, Belle and Beast, I'll see them like outside their home, but never Eric and Ariel. Yeah, because Belle's <laughs> always on the move to go meet up with Eric. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. They're kind of giving like an Oppenheimer and Jean Tatlock type vibe. Yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Because <laughs> that's, that's a comparison that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. I finished the Gilded Age last night. <gasps> so good, Elizabeth. <laughs> Oh my god. I can't believe you didn't tell me this before we started this and now I Now you can't talk about spoilers. <laughs> we will come back to this discussion. Okay, yeah, but yeah, it was off the chain. I I'm sorry, everyone, but The Gilded Age is one of the best shows on TV it right is. now and you can't convince me otherwise. It's it just really it's not is. happening. Like if you need just like an excellent TV show, that's dramatic, but doesn't like stress you out. Yeah. The Gilded Age is the way to go. Yeah. Cause you're like, somehow you root for every character. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, I like, I mean, I won't get to season two, but it's so much of it is about like a conflict between like two major characters. Mm-hmm. And you don't really care who wins. No. <laughs> you're <just> like, <laughs> I want them both to win or none of them to win. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, even the people that are supposed to be like the bad guys, you're like, they're also the good guys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll we're yeah. gonna put a cork in it yes. because I don't want to blow it for all of you. Plus, no. we plan on doing a Gilded Age episode probably very soon. This so is get true. This is that. true. Yes. In the meantime, we watched Oppenheimer. <laughs> Yeah, we are continuing our Barbenheimer week with Oppenheimer. And Elizabeth, you just saw it. So what did you think? This was <laughs> wild. This was wild, especially because I feel like our generation, like a lot of the controversy around the atomic bomb and Oppenheimer had like completely died out. And because mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't think I even learned about him in like a history class. At school. I don't think I did either. When I heard the name Oppenheimer, it rang zero bells. Same. <laughs> um, so I was like, oh, okay. Like, I knew, like, the names of the places. Mm-hmm. And, like, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, like, where all of that happened. But, like, the people involved, um, uh, I didn't know. Yeah. Um, I, I knew about the Manhattan Project from playing the video game Civilization. <laughs> which... <laughs> 
probably speaks to the <laughs> the deep sickness <laughs> that the story is about. <laughs> I um I did know about the Manhattan Project from watching like World War II documentaries, but I don't think I'd ever watched one specifically about it so i just yeah. didn't know any of the names yeah um, i mean i do have my basic world war ii history i'm not going to sell myself that short yeah. but like it's a lot of the specifics of the story i was not very familiar no. with so i was i even going into this film i really didn't know what i was expecting i knew it involved you know the atomic bomb and whatnot but yeah. uh I love this film. It I, was it, good. For lack of a better word, blew me away. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and good job, Christopher Nolan. This is the first thing I watched in a very long time without multitasking. So, oh, oh hello. <laughs> that's, that's high praise for me if I didn't multitask. Yeah, that, that is a lot from Elizabeth. Yeah, it was so good. It was so cinematic. And uh, I saw this in IMAX, and that was an experience. The music by Ludwig Grunson. Oh, so good. So good. Oh, my gosh. And the cast, and we're going to get into the costumes, but the costume oh, yeah. designs are, costume design is brilliant. It's Incredible. a masterpiece. And it's like, it's three hours, but I wasn't, I wasn't ever bored. And like, we were kind of talking about this beforehand. Like, Christopher Nolan could have easily made two movies mm -hmm. out of this story. But having it be just one big movie, it just the story is so much more concise and like moves so well that you're like, yeah, two two movies of this would have been too much. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of people, I mean, I, we hear the complaint all the time about like movies are too long these days. But I think a longer movie is fine if you could keep us, you know, interested throughout the whole yeah. thing. And Christopher Nolan achieved that with this film, I would say. Sometimes, you know, big films like that don't do it. And then the complaint, you know, feels necessary. Like oh, that yeah. was 45 minutes too long. I think Oppenheimer was just right. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't anything unnecessary, like story wise in it. Everything made sense. It was just, it was a great movie. Yeah, I agree. And I think we should get into it. Yeah. So I will start us off with a summary. <clears throat> During World War II, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves Jr. appoints physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer to work on a top-secret Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer and a team of scientists spend years developing and designing the atomic bomb. Their work comes to fruition on July 16, 1945, as they witness the world's first nuclear explosion, forever changing the course of history. And that is Oppenheimer. That is Oppenheimer. Quite the change of pace from Barbie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been reading so like articles about like how the two of them premiering on the same day, like is what made them both so like successful. And I'm like, yeah, it was it was very an experience. true. Yeah. It was. And I'm like, I know there are so many people I know who went to go see Oppenheimer, who did the whole like Barbenheimer experience, yeah. who absolutely would not have seen Oppenheimer. Yeah. And like otherwise That's they true. wouldn't have done it. They just they wanted to be part of this experience. And I'm like, you know what? Good for them. Yeah. It's like a story of like two enemies coming together and becoming like close allies and friends. <laughs> yeah. <you know>? Yeah. Because <laughs> they both carried each other to the top in twenty twenty three. They really did. Going behind the costumes, we have director Christopher Nolan and costume designer Ellen Mirajnik. You will know her work from 
Fatal Attraction, Wall Street, Basic Instinct, Chaplin, Roger Hammerstein's Cinderella from 1997, for which she got an Emmy nomination, Starship Troopers, The Chronicles of Riddick, Behind the Candelabra, for which she got an Emmy win, The Nick, The Greatest Showman, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, Bridgerton season one, for which she got an Emmy nomination, Mm -hmm. 2021 Cinderella. And this year for Oppenheimer, she has received a Costume Designer Guild nomination. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm excited for Ellen. This is so fun. Um, I mean, Ellen Morozhnik is is incredible. I love all of her work and she's such a great person and very inspiring and I love talking to her. And I'm so happy that Oppenheimer has gained all the recognition. She got a Costume Designers Guild Award and I think she deserves an Academy Award also. Absolutely. You know, time will tell on that, but I'm just so happy for Ellen. I'm so excited. This film was really beautiful and like the centerpiece what i do like about this is like the centerpiece is oppenheimer himself Mm -hmm. and with like between her costume killian murphy's performance and christopher nolan's direction just everything always zeroes in on him and it just like is it's perfect yeah it's so good and actually more on that later because i think you kind of touched on my one costume to rule them all but (laughs) before we get into that (laughs) We have a exciting, I guess it's not really a surprise, but surprise for you all. Uh, costume designer Ellen Morozhnik is here for a interview about her work on Oppenheimer. Uh, so we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, uh, you'll be hearing my interview with Ellen Morozhnik. So excited. episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com I am so excited to introduce costume designer Ellen Mirajnik. Hey, Ellen. Hey, Spencer. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm so excited to finally be talking to you. I'm such a fan of your work going all the way back to Cinderella. So this is a big privilege. Oh, it's my honor. (laughs) Well, let's dive into Oppenheimer. What a huge film. I admit when I first heard about it, I was a little like on the fence. But as the tension built and got closer and closer, I'm obsessed with this movie now. I've seen it twice already and going in for a third. I feel it. I actually I am also going in to see it again. Nice. week. Um, (laughs) I hadn't seen it till it was all together. uh, The the night of the 17th in New York. And it was a magnificent IMAX screen. Yes. And 70 millimeter IMAX. 
And I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed by the whole entire film. I, it took about a week to digest. I I feel like I'm still in that period. Oh, okay. (laughs) It is really quite, quite a, a, a layered, magnificent portrait. And it is, it, there's so much that, um, and the, listen, it's, it's Chris Nolan's genius. I mean, he is a magnificent artist. He is a genius. He's, uh, I think number one filmmaker that I have really ever known and worked with. And it's quite extraordinary how he weaves this magic together in, in, into a masterpiece of, of a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And for everyone who's listening, definitely go see an IMAX like as soon as possible. Definitely. Cause it was such an experience. I was, and, and, I was overwhelmed. It's, it's overwhelming, but not in a bad way. And it's not no. the way that when in previous IMAX films, if you sit through them and if it, particularly if it's an action film and it's quite intense and it's quite frenetic and quite, you're not quite sure if you're in the midst of it and you're being tousled and so on and so forth. But this film is so intimate in an IMAX experience that there's nothing like it. I felt it was actually a very original experience. Right. It was a symphony of imagery, I would a say. symphony. Talk about the music. The music is just oh, the most so extraordinary good. score that you'll ever hear. And yeah. It, it's every single element and, and it's done so seamlessly. I was listening to the score in the car yesterday. Are you? So good. Yeah. It's so good. It, it, I, I don't even think that good is the right adjective. No. I mean, I don't, I have stopped trying to describe the film using adjectives because I don't think that there are enough <laughs> to accommodate it. I really don't. And I'm quite proud of, of this film. It's, it is, it's once in a lifetime. I feel blessed. Wow. Well, that leads me to my first question. You know, this is such a powerful cinematic story. So what originally drew you to this story and the project? Chris Nolan asking to meet me. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's when I met Chris and Emma, Emma Thomas, um, he, you don't you don't read anything. You just go on a meet and greet like mm-hmm. everybody, every actor ever goes on a meet and greet, you know, and that kind of thing. Designers don't necessarily go on meet and greets. You usually know what it what it is really. Uh, well, I knew what it was, but I didn't read anything. I did. However, I did. However, uh, in all fairness, listen to as much as the book as I could mm-hmm. before the book that it's based on. American Prometheus before meeting just to have an idea and um, just to have a a meet and greet. I was called, they said, Chris Nolan wants to um, meet you for this film. Would you, when uh, on this date or what have you, (laughs) um, and be there basically. (laughs) It's not something that you say no to. Or are you just like, say, really? Okay. But I had known that Jeffrey Curland, who has done Chris's uh, last previous film, the last couple of previous um, uh, films that Chris made was not available. 
Mm. I had known that this film was happening on a particular at a particular time, and he was still involved in a project. Nice, so, so uh, opening there. There was an opening, <laughs> and um, I feel blessed that I was um, I was asked to to meet the Nolans, and it became the most extraordinary experience that I have ever had. And I really say that, and I don't know if this was the 80th film that I did. I don't know if it was the set or the project that was, that's including um, some television, but there was nothing like this experience in my entire career. That's incredible. Especially I mean, with the career that you've had to keep topping yourself like this is, I mean, it's, incredible i don't know many people that have had that experience so it's really 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 incredible it's it's it it is real i mean this is in hindsight now right you know i mean no matter what the outcome of the film was to be the experience of it was by far the most exceptional and interesting and new I do emphasize new because, you know, there's a formula in which we work and so on, but, and each experience is different depending on who you're working with um, and what the vision is. But this was, it was actually very new from the beginning, actually from meeting them and not knowing what the material was and not being able to read the text until you were hired and said, yes. <laughs> wow. You and I mean, so that in itself is an entirely new um, approach. I don't really think of it, Spencer, as topping myself as much as as much as experiencing yet another way of telling a story mm -hmm. in a way that it was a compelling story beyond. And Chris Nolan is a master, you know, and, and he is a legend. He is a master and there's nobody better. And there's nobody in that category, unfortunately, in our, in our day and age, maybe two, I mean, maybe three, right. <laughs> I don't know, but I was very, very, I, in hindsight though, in, in full disclosure and hindsight, I, I do feel quite blessed that over the course of my career, I have worked with some of the greats right? in the mo yeah. in modern cinema. I have worked with some of the greats and even one that has passed. That was the end of his, his um, career. And that was Sir Dickie Attenborough. But otherwise I have worked with some of the greats and I feel quite fortunate about that. Right. Uh, well, speaking to, we talked a little bit about the book, uh, which based on 2005 biography titled American Pro Prometheus, the triumphant tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Um, it details his extraordinary life and also deep tragedy, as we've seen. Um, I've spoken to you before about your research process. When Back when you did Bridgerton, I remember back then being like, wow, you laid out all these mood boards and it's just such detail. So I know going into this film... I bet you it was not any different. I'm sure there's tons of research. What was your process like in preparing for this? Well, it's funny you say that, but it's two entirely different things. For so sure. Bridgerton, <laughs> the details and, and, and the the details are there. However, in 
on Oppenheimer, it's starting Oppenheimer, the amount of visual material was vast. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it was not, we didn't have to make it up. That's good. And so (laughs) you, there are obviously certain photographs would be more inspirational than others or when you put the when you collage it together, it would be a very, very emotional experience of what your research needs to accomplish, being that you're going over um, from 25 to 62. So it, it, there's quite a lot of information that you have to pack into. I always I don't necessarily I call them like little story booklets I put together. So. That's what so in in selecting photos that would best represent each decade or each each character in each decade or the feeling of each decade, there was a vast amount to choose from. So that was it. it I drawing on other inspiration would be just like kind of tones. For example, um during Los Alamos or at the beginning of Los Alamos and building Los, Los, Los Alamos and 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 how that comes to pass, it was very, very much um, the feeling of a Western. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, that was, I, I did sneak in some Western research in there <laughs> and some Ben Eastwood. And, um, and just what that, kind of camaraderie and what it felt like in that environment, in that type of environment where it wasn't, you know, it was rough and tumble and not sophisticated and where we were at. So I just needed to feel that, although the the photographs, the real photographs from Los Alamos at that time did feel like that, but I just needed a little bit more visceral experience to be able to get into Los Alamos and so on. And the rest of it was very, there was a point of view actually that we were after because knowing that we were going to shoot black and white and color, what we were after was not making a precious, I'm going to try to be like as clear as I can about this, (laughs) precious, period film. And what I mean by that is, is that although I've worked in a lot of, um, a lot of genres that have been period in the past, I've actually not been really given the opportunity to make a precious period film. <laughs> I really haven't in, in all fairness. I really, How did really, this happen? <laughs> I don't know, but it's really true. And I thought that, oh, I'm going to make a period Chris Nolan film, but that wasn't the case. <laughs> we were not after a precious film. So close. <laughs> so close, but not, not on the nose. Um, and so when we began the film, it was very, Chris was very clear in what his vision was and that it was from, and it's written, of course, and being done from Oppenheimer's point of view. So when you do that type of work, how how do you allow enough precise, but not obvious, leeway in the periods 
to be able to have everything slide from decade to decade to decade without taking anybody out of the story. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay. So that's basically the challenge, right? And it it's a very, it's an interesting challenge to have because in the very, very beginning, I've said this before in a couple of interviews, but I will say it again. It was clear because I mean, I mean, this is at the at the core. It was clear from the research and looking at it with uh, Chris and Emma that Oppenheimer, when laid out across the decades from the beginning to the end of his life, his silhouette basically never changed. And that was very clear to me from the get go. The one thing that wasn't clear, obviously, is that they were black and white photos. Right. Right. So what you felt were textures and kind of what you know to be colors that would be relevant and so on. And at one point during this meeting, Chris had turned and asked, he said, well, what should we do with the shirts? And I remember just saying they're blue. He <laughs> said, great. <laughs> I mean, now I didn't know that they were blue, but I thought it would be blue and shades of blue. Certainly it's for Killian and the color of his eyes are clear, but so were Oppenheimer's eyes. They were also blue. Oh. So um, it was very, it was somewhat of a very organic, very, very quick study. If you would, there was nothing precious about the study. It was clear his, his silhouette was the same. It changed with the fabrication. He came from a wealthy he came from a wealthy um, home. His father was a, um, I think he, I don't know if he had a fabric company or he imported fabric. I wasn't quite sure. I don't really remember, but he was exposed to the finer things in life at a very, very early age. Subsequently, um, he would, he would know good from bad, you know, no cheap from, from fine. Right. Um, and so he was he even though his silhouette never changed, he was expressive in the way he he um, presented himself. Yeah, that I, leads me to my next question, because when you first see him, when I think of a physicist, you know, you think of lab coats and kind of a nerdy guy, which, you know, that's fair. Um, but the way that he presents himself, especially before Los Alamos, is just very I don't know. There's a little bit of a style there, even if his silhouette never changes. So that makes a lot of sense. Yes, there definitely, definitely is a style to it. Yeah, he's a, I think he's very stylish. I agree. I agree. I think he's very stylish. He's very conscious of how he presents himself. Remember, there's so he's a genius and there's so much turmoil inside that nervous system of his and his brain. Mm -hmm. And there's an explosiveness inside of it an un an unharnessed explosiveness inside of him. And so I feel that in in creating an idea of showing yourself a, or presenting a silhouette um that is is I would say a bit in part in some ways unconventional for mm -hmm. a physicist and very um I hesitate to use the word dapper, but <laughs> dapper in a way, but he's very presentational. However, he was very 
you know, he was a ladies man and he liked very fine things and had very, very fine things. And we're accustomed to that. So I don't really think that um, we played that down in any way. Mm -hmm. You know, we just we played down a palette, but that's basically because it that's what we felt it needed to be. I remember seeing him at one of the first, you know, parties and I think it's when he meets Gene and I'm just like, wow, this man has style and a swag. <laughs> like does. I, I get it. You know? He purposely has to have it. Um, <laughs> but I think that it was part, I mean, the collaboration um, between Killian, myself and Chris was exceptional. You know, I mean, Killian is the most, collaborative and committed actor that you could find. And because Oppenheimer had a particular feel to him, which we feel at its, I would say, biggest, biggest time during Los Alamos. I mean, he was empowered. He was the leader. He was the head of the town. He was everything. Mm -hmm. And that's where he's most empowered. I think to build to that and to build to exhibiting that silhouette was um, something that was we worked on and was we were very careful about how do you lead up to that and does that making sure once again that it doesn't look forced. Um, so typically when I talk to costume designers, I always hear about productions and their fear of hats. Uh, but this is a movie full of, I should say, hat moments on Oppenheimer. <laughs> One of the first notes that Chris actually just said point blank. Nobody's to wear hats. Oppenheimer's the only one that wears a hat. <laughs> Why is that? He has a particular, I call it mythic image, iconic image. And it always includes this hat. And so to highlight that at a very um a very at the at a pinnacle moment was quite important in the story and for the evolution of the character and mm. if do not this is the hats are part of the preciousness that i was talking about before right clearly we know in period films most period films if not 100% certainly 90% will always include men and women's hats. Mm-hmm. Okay. Granted, I didn't have hats in, in really in, in Bridgerton. So I will <laughs> take this back. I don't want to get known for that, but yes, no. it's true. <laughs> this is really true. Um, a good hairstyle will always, always be fabulous um, or, or necessary when there are no hats and we had the best on Oppenheimer. That being said, one of the things he Chris said, n- no hats. So when you don't, uh, obviously in the army, Matt Damon wears a hat, mm-hmm. et cetera. There was a hat because of uh, two story points that needed to be had and, and we needed to do for um, Einstein. Mm. Um, and which we did one of which is a story point. It flies away. The other one is an image that we loved of Einstein when, when come upon in a knit hat, when he's come upon in a knit hat. But aside from that, there are no hats. I think that I can, 
I, I don't have a psychology for it or what have you. It is, I mean, I, I remember discussing with Chris a couple of times. Are you sure? No hats, because I won't have them. You know, <laughs> You're if, like, you don't have you, to tell me twice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not going to have them. You sure? Uh, and he was a hundred percent sure. And I think that it was perfect for the vision. And I think mm-hmm. it was perfect for the vision in this, in this respect. Right. And what, and I, 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 never questioned it after like the last time he said, no, no hats, no hats. I never questioned it from that point forward. I never looked at everybody and said, oh, I wish I had a hat. Mm-hmm. Never. No. <laughs> Oppenheimer has his hat. It's the most important thing that we had to get right um, for him. And we did. And I was thrilled to death about that. And that being said is. When you watch the film, the one thing I came away with a week later after digesting the film, truthfully, mm-hmm. <laughs> is, um, is that this isn't a biopic to me. This is all my words um, and thoughts. It's not a biopic. It is really a portrait. It's a For me, I think of it as a work of art, um, the whole piece. And it mm. is a portrait. It is the portrait of this man in in throughout his life. Okay, and with that, in how Chris tells the story, it is not necessarily a period piece. So I'm taking that word away and it really is a time piece. And why I say that is simply because it slides from time to time. Mm -hmm. You always know when you're in another time, but it's not hit over your head. It's not precious. It's not dated underneath. Nothing happens. It is from he, he is telling his story from his point of view. And so that portrait slides from the beginning of his life to the end of his life, but it slides in lots of different ways. And if in fact there were hats, it could, I don't know that it would, but I'm just suggesting that it could take you out of the story and the Mm. intimacy of the story. Okay. Yes. They wore hats inside in the, in, in those periods of time and so on. That wasn't only an, uh, you know, exterior moment, but I think that if I reflect on the story, being up close in personal, if you will, a hat potentially would have taken you out of the story just a smidge. And it would it would have not allowed for the intimacy that was created throughout this this tale. That's so interesting. I totally get what you mean, actually. Now that I think of it, just I could imagine just that small little detail and just what's on their heads could really pull you out. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in other period pictures, you you look at it from, you know, the balcony, so to speak. You know, you don't. There are different, you know, portraits and different in different ways in which period films are expressed. But I don't really think I don't think of this film as a period film. I think of it as a portrait through time. Mm-hmm. And it's like a timepiece. It's not. That's why I said in the beginning, it really, really feels quite original to me. Right. It doesn't feel like anything else that I have seen 
anything, anywhere, at any time. And not just because I was part of it. <laughs> just as the audience. I mean, when I watched it for the first time, I was like an audience member. I wasn't watching it for any of the work that, you know, we did. I think on that, in that way, it adds to the exceptionality of this experience. Right. I totally agree with you. It just feels so original and new. Watch it. Something that, you know, is a story that's been, you know, we know quite a few we years know. ago, <laughs> but still know. feels so new and fresh all of a sudden. Yes. I feel the same way. Yeah. So, so now that we have the hat on Oppenheimer and talking about silhouette, when we're in Los Alamos, we you touch a little bit on the Western inspiration, a very slight Western inspiration. I couldn't help but feel like he was almost like a sheriff in this town when he was walking around it. He felt like the man. He I is the feel man. feel like that was intentional. Yes, it was very intentional and and it was very intentional and that's where he he really blossoms. He has the power um and he exhibits it. As I mean there's a you know a great line that Robbie says to him, well, you get that uniform off and the next shot you see is the hat, the pipe, him staring out the, out the window with those magnificent blue eyes that like <laughs> kind of just shoots through his eyes, puts the hat on, takes the pipe. And here we are um, as he, as he walks out and clearly he's become the man. Mm -hmm. the man. <laughs> and I think that, I, I mean, I, I love this picture. I do love this picture because the colors is so, so perfect. I think that he is just that hat, which is somewhat of a hybrid. I think it's a hybrid. I don't know what to call it, but it's a hybrid of a pork pie with an extended brim mm. that looks to me that, you know, this takes place in New Mexico and he loved New Mexico and loved, he lived above Santa Fe and so on. He loved being in that environment and stuff. And I don't know, it has a little bit of more of an extended brim. It's not a fedora brim. It's not that, but it's not a cowboy brim, but it's a kind of a combo plate. I think I don't know. That's why I say, I don't know what I would call it, but it's right. certainly not a typical pork pie hat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Oppenheimer wasn't the only character in this film. There were tons of costumes tons. and I kept thinking Ellen must have had a, like the most brilliant, massive team to put this together. I had the most brilliant team. Yes, they were. <laughs> Specifically with the hearings and in Los Alamos. So how, how did this collaboration come together? What was it like working with your team? It was hectic as hell. <laughs> it's um, it, it just was the a, truth <laughs> it was that was the truth it was hectic as hell we were constantly on the go and constantly fitting and constantly producing and constantly going where are we going to get more clothes <laughs> and constantly <laughs> saying well can we use that instead of that and and so on because because we did cover so so much ground and and Actually, the amount of people set, seemed to us that they kept on growing and growing and growing. But <laughs> I don't know that it really did, but it felt like that. And we were constantly fitting. So, you know, it's I, I really think without the brilliance of the team, as I would like look at what they were doing, I don't 
I, somehow I don't know how I, how I retain my objectivity, <laughs> but I did. Um, and maybe sometimes I would admit, maybe I was sometimes too harsh in saying, no, that tie's not right. No, I hate that suit. And, and I don't, you know, that's what happens during, during the process, I think, but they were um, an amazing, very patient, very productive team that worked, that worked and worked and worked. There was not one minute that, that wasn't, somebody wasn't working. I mean, it just happened continually. The scene um, that you see with the students and in the auditorium when he comes in that we're looking at um, in color, that scene actually was, that scene was never actually in the beginning in pre-production thought to be one that would be very colorful. And Chris and Emma asked a couple of days before we shot it, can we do it very colorfully, you know, in bold color and something that maybe we haven't seen before. And fortunately, because of the brilliance of this team, they pulled it together, sent it up to New Mexico and we fit it the next day. So it was that type of, there was nothing that was preset. There was, everything was on the run, on the go. We got tired. We ran out of fitters. We ran out of fitters. In fact, Jeffrey Curlin, God bless his soul and God bless our friendship. He came and fit um, the two parties that took place. The one where where Oppenheimer meets Kitty mm-hmm. and the one um, in what's supposed to be the Plaza Hotel when uh, Straws introduces his uh, son-in-law and daughter to oh, okay. So Jeffrey fit all the women. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, Sometimes so, you got to phone a friend. <laughs> phone a friend, anybody. Are you sure you want to help? I'll give you a few hours. I mean, I, I was, we were ready to take everything. And, and he did such a stupendous job along with all the rest of um, my team. And so, you know, with a little help from your friends, you go a long way <laughs> because you can't do it by yourself. Right. <laughs> you just can't do it by yourself. It's never a one man team. <laughs> um, one of my one of my favorite moments was actually the black and white scenes. Uh-huh. And I it's just poses to me such an in- interesting conversation when it comes to designing the costumes. How does that translate when they're filming in black and white? Like how are you deciding like what colors and how how does that work? Well, we looked at black and white footage before we began. Okay. And um and that helped, of course, you know, it gives you a bit of um, um, a ground, a foundation of from where to work. In the case of this film, what it appeared to be and, and knowing the environments that we were in and and the population of the film. The one thing that you had to work with for the most part and the time periods, OK, is that so if you're painting a painting, you know, the people in the that move in and around the foreground, right, could take on shapes, okay? So because it's the late 40s and and early 50s into the latter part of the 50s, you are faced with a lot of flat fabric. So those are flat shapes. So that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with shapes. You're not dealing with color. You're, light, you're looking at a grayscale more or less. 
you know? So what you try to do, what we try to do was really balance that grayscale in that type of, in, in the, in the background world and in some of our, 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 our secondary players. But for the most part, what we really try to do with the principal players is have enough texture, have enough texture in within the grayscale. And the one way, of course, that we have modern technology to check it continually is with the iPhone and just turn it to black and white. You get, <laughs> you get the idea of the contrast. You right. get the idea of the contrast and the texture and the contrast and seeing what you can do with it or what you might need to do with it. And because on the film, Chris works so fast, so fast that you really have to just be happy with all that you have because you're never going to know where it's going to wind up. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, you're the brush, brush strokes and he's doing the painting, you know uh -huh. what I mean? And, and Hoyta, of course, Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant cinematographer. So that's what you hope for. But we did always talk about texture in the very beginning, in the pre-production of it, and the importance of the texture, and so on. And and the thing that we always did have um, a library to look back on it are were those black and white photos of the research. So it always played an important part. That a, a reference that you could when you're blinded by thousands of suits, right? And you just, wait a minute, did I see that before? Or, or <laughs> you're questioning yourself. There was a library to look back at, to say, no, that, that'll that play, that'll be that'll be okay. It, it Maybe it's not enough texture, maybe you need something else, or it's plenty, leave it alone, you know? So it's a back and forth. That's so yeah. fascinating. It's like you're painting your own portrait, actually, with the costumes and this grayscale. Um, yeah, but you're giving the master what he needs <laughs> right. to create the whole. So, <laughs> of course, you're always an artist when always an artist through the process, you know, but you can be the artist that the master's assistant, if you will, <laughs> um, or colleague, what, however you want to call it. Um it's just, it's, you know, it's a, it's a very, I think it's a very great way of working because you're always thinking. Right. Nothing is ever absolute until it's absolute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's some, a challenge there, but it's great. Well, some other characters that I thought were just as fun, uh, Kitty Oppenheimer, played by yeah. Emily Blunt, she goes through her own sets of challenges throughout the story alongside Oppenheimer. Uh, what did it, What did Kitty's costume say about her throughout her life? Well, I think that I hope that what you felt from Kitty was that she was a, an ambitious woman. Mm-hmm who transferred her ambition to her husband, who never let ambition out of the marriage, right? And transferred it to the husband and lost herself along the, herself along the way and became a bit unhappy. Yeah. But she always had, Kitty came from um, also um, a, a a well-bred background and had a sophistication about her. So 
Kitty, what was important about Kitty, and also because there were no women in the movie, was that she also was not allowed to be precious. Okay. Precious in a period, I put quotes around the period way. <laughs> you had to believe that it was, it just was. Okay. And sometimes you don't believe that with women in period films. But in this case, you really did have to believe it. And what was really important to me was that we created, we created her character in a way that that the the costumes, if you will, were somewhat um they were natural and thrown away. So they were never costumes. If like if you look at the, the photo of the um her with the sheets. Okay. It's a simple blouse, a sweater. I think she has jeans on at, at that time. When when fitting Emily, she we always look to have in that Los Alamos time, in leading up to that Los Alamos time and in that Los Alamos time, when she really does get lost in, she just gets lost in herself. Um, we wanted to express it and we wanted to express it in a bit of a tomboy kind of way. There was nothing really, she lost her femininity. She lost something that, um, she once had, but we, but we certainly learn that she was a woman that stayed by her man without a question. And it was on the foundation of ambition and what she wanted him to accomplish as we see throughout the film when they are in fine form together. And of course, in the end, but she's a very, um, I think that she is, she becomes somewhat of a, somewhat of a tomboy, maybe just a plain woman. Mm, and, and I say plain in, in the respect of not dowdy, not, not, um, she's lost a sophistication that she might've found in an urban environment or in, in Europe or some other place. She's in a Western town and she's not wearing a skirt until you see her at the, at the ceremony. She wears a red skirt. She's very American in red, white, and blue there. <laughs> I, love I mean, she's note. quite the opposite of Florence because I always felt with his women, Florence represented the passion. Yes. The love and the passion Kitty represented the ambition that that how that ambition just circulates like it like the atom, right? And it blows apart just like the atom, but then kind of comes back into a simple form. So is Kitty. Florence, who plays Jean Tatlock, she is the passion. She ignites his passion. I always felt in the Gita, in that where it is, um, you know, the famous saying. And I think that that ignited his life on that journey to get to Los Alamos. But I thought it was interesting, Jean's colors to me, like exactly what you said, there was passion to her. There's a little bit of a, I don't want to say a spice, but just like her colors were, you could tell that there was a fire between these two characters. 
without a question. And I think it was really important because as a result, I mean, there was nothing cut out of this film, nothing cut out of the script. I thought thought that it was important that you know who you were looking at. Mm-hmm. And and also, I mean, it was not on they were not unreal to the time uh, that that we were working in. You know, there were other women at the party that they meet at and the colors were similar. But it was real important to understand Florence's body and how she moved and what she what would would say what we were trying to say about her without with keeping it subtle at the same time. Right. Right. Especially because she didn't have too much time in the film. So really those moments really counted. The little, the, the kind of periods at the end of little, you know, of small sentences, but they pack a punch and um, what we really, the intention was clearly was to um, show her passion. Right. Uh, well, so I, find military uniforms and films very interesting because to me it seems like such a challenge with all the detail and uh, personally i would let you know that i you know studied a lot of i've researched a lot of what john malo used to do as a military Uh consultant on charge of a light brigade and going to star wars and alien whom you actually also worked with Mm -hmm. so i was curious you know what what sort of challenges are there when creating military uniforms such as the one we see on Matt Damon and the people he surrounds himself with? Well, you don't, it's not creating them. You know, it's, it's understanding what is the rank? Who is it? What rank is he? What service is he in? Et cetera. What time of year is it? There are, it, it exists. Mm-hmm. So you have a good military advisor make sure to to bring the right pieces and and they could be the right pieces the the challenge is is that we don't have have at our disposal full 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 military <laughs> um every year right, a, right. A, a, a plethora of uniforms to choose from that are going to fit all of our actors uh-huh. so we have to recreate it but it is all too precision. That is 100% precise. Right. Because that's not something you fool around with, in my opinion. Right. I would agree. It has to be like very dead very, on. Very, very, very dead on. And 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 you can't screw it. You can't fool with it. You know, <laughs> I mean, I don't even think that you could fool with, would he be walking down the street and making this up. Would he be walking down the street and have his jacket open? Mm-hmm. You can't fool with that. That's <laughs> not allowed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean? You can take creative license in many different ways, but not that. Right. <laughs> okay. That's kind of what I figured. It's very yeah. precise. <laughs> very precise. <laughs> well, Ellen, this has been so wonderful and I've just so blown away by this film. And like I said, I have to go back and see it. Uh, you really, you talked about this toward the beginning, but it's such a roaring success. So I was just curious, looking back on this project, like what did you take away from this project and what do you hope the audience takes away from the project? I I hope that the audience takes away um, the beauty of this masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I really do. Uh, The beauty of this story, the story in history that we all 
have lived to where I think the film is very relevant today Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being an historical reference. It is a story of, of consequences, purpose, and then consequences and being its consequences continually. His life was filled with conflict and consequences all the way through. It is a very, very, um, it's a story that we all live through today. And because of his action and the action that was so purposeful at that time, look what happened with the touch mm-hmm. of a button, right? The world changed, wow. the world changed. And the world changed in a way that we are still living the consequence of. And I think it begs to, to for you to question and what will what will you do? Not we only, but what will you do to potentially change the world to make it better and not continually go down that path? But what I artistically, what I certainly hope that people take away from it is viscerally the magnificence of what is before them, physically what's before them, the visceralness of the story and how it like lands in their heart and how it is, it captures a, a, a period of time in a way that hopefully will speak to you in a most modern way now. And that's where the consequences come, come into play. I definitely, the last, I, <laughs> the last two minutes of the film, I just burst out tears at the end. Tears. I thought it was so I powerful. Half, I, it is really a powerful story. It is a powerful story that we think we know the story, but we don't know the story, right? We think we've learned the story and know the story of the atom bomb and what happened to it and so on, but you don't know the story and you don't know the story of the man who um, was the genius that actually was part of the team that made that happen. And then what happened to him? And that is purpose and consequence, you know? And so I think that the power behind it, really the power behind this film is so central to your heart. You know what I mean? It is so powerful in your that resonates so powerfully in your heart that you cannot help but become emotional from it. And I think that that is brilliance. I think that it, it, that's what makes a difference. That's what, that's what happens when we, when we are part of an experience um, sitting in that mag, in that movie theater in the dark, absorbing all of this. So what I took away from it is that all of that, and most importantly, there's nothing like working with the most magnificent team on the planet. (laughs) And as somebody shared with with, um, myself and Josh Quinn, my assistant, one day on the set, as we waited for dailies, his name is Adam, and he was... Um, the gaffer. And he said, you will never, ever, ever. He said, guys, you're doing a good job. But, and I remember being very, very tired at that moment in time. 
And um, we both were very tired at that moment in time. And we were shooting at high altitudes as well. I mean, so everything, mm. you get affected by everything. Yeah. Uh, and, and we were waiting, we were having dinner, waiting to see dailies. And, and he said, you'll never experience anything like this in your lives. This is, this is once it's, a, it's, it's once in a lifetime. It's at, at the end of the film, by the end of the film, you will feel like you worked on the Super Bowl. You played, <laughs> no, not worked on the Super Bowl. You, you played the Super Bowl and you'll never experience anything like this ever again. You played the Super Bowl and you won the Super Bowl. And we said, yeah, 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 yeah. We've all done like. Kind <laughs> You're of like, I'm tired. Things. I need to yeah, go to yeah. bed. <laughs> no, no, no. We listened very, very. It was quite uplifting. It was quite uplifting. He was really, really so generous in sharing this. Um, and and we said, okay, but I, we've worked on difficult things before. Mm-hmm. And um, that wasn't, and I'm thinking, well, how many films have I taken over and had to like go to shoot the next day? Kind of, I mean, that's like, I think that's pretty challenging. And he said, no, no, no. There's nothing like this that you will ever experience. And he was a hundred percent right. The last shot, after the last shot in Berkeley on that day in May, it and we were on a field, no less. We were on a football field, I believe. <laughs> I really did feel like I won the, so- the Super Bowl. And that I will never, ever, that feeling I will never, ever, ever forget. But you can't do it alone. You have to have the most magnificent team because that's what it takes. That's really, really what it takes. And so I feel really, really blessed and and very honored to have been asked to be part of Chris Nolan and Emma Thomas's team. And um, I had, I won the Super Bowl. I won the Super Bowl. <laughs> and it doesn't get really better, except, I mean, it really doesn't get any better. And I'm glad that what what's more rewarding about it is now that people have seen the film and are so moved by it and so love it and go, wow, and really um, are affected by it. And that's why we do what we do. Well, I mean, I, you won a Super Bowl is such a triumph. Your team won the Super Bowl. It was just, yeah, the, this is the, a film. The team of the movie won the Super Bowl. Right. <laughs> yeah. In the movie, outside the movie, everyone won. And it's just such a victory. And I I personally am going to rewatch this film. And it's not a film that's going to be easily forgotten. I think people are going to be talking about this film for decades to come. So it'll go down in history as a as a masterpiece. I think that I think that it is truly a, 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 an artistic endeavor that takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. It just takes your breath away on many different levels, on many different levels, not just about what it looks like in scope and in each frame, but all of that together is totally seamless without Hoyt's genius, without Ruth's genius, without our team and the and all of what we put before the camera, without the landscape, without the magnificence of the actors. Everything was just knitted together in a way that was the most seamless piece that you could watch. Remember, it's a time piece, not a period piece. 
my opinion, but it also <laughs> is part of it being very original. I, I agree. It's I, one that certainly makes you feel. It's a film that's is surprising how much it makes you feel. I think that's what I loved most about it was that I walked out of the theater and I was like, wow, that was something, something that I didn't fully expect going in. And it's a profound effect. You know, uh, I have to, I have to just say this, this, this quick little thing. I was, um, I don't know, I guess it was like maybe in May or whatever. I listened to a podcast called The Big Picture. Um, and do you listen to it? I haven't, but I've heard of it. Yeah. So anyway, it's a great podcast and, and it's Sean and Amanda. Okay. And they go through <laughs> this, um, what do they call it? They call it the draft or something of that, that, where they pick the films that are coming out and how they, who wants to own them and who wants to, you know, rank them and so on and so forth. And I'll never forget this. When it came to Oppenheimer, um, Amanda placed it wherever she took it and wanted and and she got it and placed it in whatever position she placed it in. And Sean said, nah, I, and she said, well, why are you like not interested? Like, why? Why didn't you like fight me for it? It's Chris Nolan. What are you crazy? And Chris <laughs> Nolan is a star, a right. big star. He's the biggest. That star is like, like just radiating, radiating constantly. Anyway, so he, she says, why didn't you want? And he said, oh, come on. It's the story of Oppenheimer. It's the story of Adam. We know the movie. We know the, how it ends. Why do I need to know it? She said, well, you're going to need to know it. And he said, uh, uh, whatever, you take it. And I'll never forget that because when it came out, he said, <laughs> just like what you said, just like what you said, I didn't expect it. Isn't that fabulous, though? That, I mean, that's, in that way. that's like the cherry on top of the whole thing, I would say. It is. It is. Yeah. It's the Super Bowl ring. <laughs> yes, I love that. With that, costume designer, Ellen Mirajnik, thank you so much for joining. This has been such a pleasure, and I'm just oh, so happy so for you. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy that you enjoyed it, and we'll go back again. Yes. Maybe I'll meet you in the theater. I'm yeah. going to get Yeah, well. we can share a large popcorn. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. Hi, this is Dan, audio engineer of the podcast, here to let you know that if you wanted to support the show, you can head over to theartofcostume.com slash podstore. There you can buy some awesome TeePublic merch with the podcast logo, such as a shirt, coffee mug, stickers, and of course, a baby onesie. Thanks for all your support. I could listen to Ellen forever. She's just such a wealth of knowledge and the dedication and work that her entire team put into this, which it sounds like it was not an easy project whatsoever. It was a lot of mm -mm. hard work because it's a lot of costumes, a lot of suits, um, oh, yeah. military uniforms, uh, 
like decades and decades of work and trial scenes. It's so much. And she and her team just absolutely killed it. And I'm just so happy for her. I could listen to her forever. It it was incredible. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to play our favorite game. Are you? I Let's am. do it. The one costume to rule them all. Spencer, what's your one costume to rule them all? So my favorite costume, it was a hard one because there was just so many costumes. But after talking to Ellen, I think my favorite costume had been one of the suits that Oppenheimer wears when he's walking around Los Alamos. Because as she says, he's like the man of the hour. He's kind of like the sheriff of the town because Oppenheimer is such like a... At this time, like, he's such a cool guy. You know, he's, like, the leader on his yeah. secret project. And everyone's like, oh, that's that's the guy. So he kind of has, like, this, like, Western kind of sheriff vibe to him. He's the only one that wears a hat. And he just has this, like, tailored fitted suit. He just he just looks like such this, a star, you know, at this moment. And uh, which is interesting because of course he's working on this really serious project that means a lot of (laughs) (laughs) horrible things for our planet but in this moment like he is like the man of the hour kind of like the the myth and the legend as he's walking around los alamos so i'm picking like that that uh i I don't it's kind of like a gray maybe brownish suit uh where he has like the blue shirt and a short tie in the hat like the sheriff look yeah that is a great look um, I chose a character that's was not in it as much as I would have liked, uh, but I loved his look. I chose Einstein. Oh, <laughs> by the pond. I I liked it because I would say a lot. Obviously, all the characters are distinct and have their own personalities, but when it came to like specific looks. Mm-hmm. I felt like Oppenheimer and Einstein, they had the most like specific like character looks Uh because Oppenheimer doesn't look like all the other scientists and neither does Einstein. And Einstein's (laughs) very much like who Oppenheimer will at one point become. (laughs) (laughs) And Einstein knows that he's like, hey, I'm just here to chill and like. I want to say feed the ducks, but I don't think there were any ducks <laughs> on that pond. There's just, probably ducks. Just staring at the, the pond and like <laughs> chilling. And he's just like very much this like also mythical figure, you know, just imparting his wisdom. And he has such mm-hmm. like this cozy like grandpa look where he's like, I'm done being, you know, the serious scientist. I know what I've done. And like, that's okay. And now I'm just going to live out my life in peace and try to enjoy it. Yeah, that's such a good one. And also, um, I was kind of nervous about the Einstein character too, because I feel like that's a character that could go, because everyone has like an idea of Einstein. I feel like yeah. it could just went like campy, you know, yeah. if like when you see like Leonardo da Vinci in a movie or like mm-hmm. any, like any sort of like historical figure that's like, we actually do read about in textbooks. They tend to get very kind of campy. Yeah. I feel like Einstein felt like, Oh, like this is authentic. Like this for the most part, it feels real. Like Einstein is actually in yeah. the story. It was super 
grounded character. Yeah. Because Einstein was a very eccentric person and mm -hmm. they could have played that up, yeah. but they didn't. Like they took him as like this serious scientific figure that he is. Oh my is. gosh, the end of this movie. I mean, he he has like the one-two punch at the end of this Yeah. <laughs> that put like actual chills down my yeah. spine. <laughs> I lost sleep over yeah. the end of this movie. Because like when Oppenheimer like says that to him and it's like he's one of the few people who especially at the time could understand what what he's saying yeah well oh by the way we should mention that this is probably your direction elizabeth if you keep enjoying your sunday brunches at the diners oh. reading newspapers yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, maybe that's why i chose <laughs> <laughs> and with that that is the end of our barbenheimer week uh thank you all so much for listening to both barbie and oppenheimer it, this was fun I'm, I'm glad we got to do this it worked out you know we wanted to do this differently last year but this was meant to be i feel like having both barbie and oppenheimer in the same week i i agree i agree i feel like it was a great great start to season four and I just, I can't wait for the rest of the season. Spencer, what are we watching next? Next episode, Elizabeth, I am very excited. Uh, so we're getting back into our every other week schedule. Yes. But of course, it's still hard for us to say that because we always end up putting out bonus episodes. Yeah. So. <laughs> Our schedule's a bit promiscuous. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but for those of you that are new, we usually spend like the first half of the year kind of doing like an every other week episode. And as we get closer to, you know, Halloween and the holidays, then we sort of ramp up a little bit. Um, so our next episode on January 30th, um, we are going to be watching Poor Things. And yes. I am so excited. I love this movie. I've seen it twice already. Um Probably some of the most innovative, creative costumes I've seen in a long time. Easily one of my favorite costume films currently out right now and possibly of all time. And I know Elizabeth is going to love it just as much. I, I can't wait to see it. I'm really excited. Uh, in the meantime, if you would like some content from us, you can follow us on Instagram at The Art of Costume Pod, on TikTok at The Art of Costume or if you would like some Art of Costume podcast merch, you can visit our store, theartofcostume.com slash podstore. And if you liked what you heard, we would really, really appreciate it if you left us a five-star text review on Apple Podcast. Well, Elizabeth, this has been fun. It's been fun. Uh, it's been a great week, and I'm so excited for season four. Thank you all I'm for listening. So excited, y'all. Have a good two weeks. The Art of Costume podcast is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Joy Glass and Spencer Williams. Our audio engineering and editing is done by Dan White. Follow us on TikTok at The Art of Costume and Instagram at The Art of Costume Pod. If you want to support the show, go to theartofcostume.com slash podstore. For more podcast updates, costume reviews, deep dives, and interviews, go to theartofcostume.com, a blog dedicated to highlighting the best in costume design.
You can follow us on Instagram at the Art of Costume Pod, on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> TikTok. Nice. <laughs> 